the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Good evening, and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am Headmaster and host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280, The Patriot. And of course, I'm joined in studio once again by our wonderful producer of Education Nation and my co-host, Mark Durkin. Good evening again. How are we, Rebecca? I am doing very, very well. Yes. Looking forward to another great conversation with our wonderful guest, Catherine. A very important one. It is very important. Yes, and I hope that our listeners were able to listen to the podcast last week and if not, uh, we encourage you to go back and listen to it on ednationmn.org because uh, that's going to give you sort of the foundation for the show that we're going to be we're gonna talking talk about, about tonight. tonight. Yes. Yeah. Well, every 10 years, the state of Minnesota updates its academic standards, which establish what students are expected to know and be able to do in a given subject. But did you know the standards are being drafted by demographic special interest groups? and that lawmakers no longer have a hands-on role in the formation of those standards. Our guest last week and this evening as well says that the new standards focus primarily on cultivating politically correct attitudes and commitments rather than preparing students to take on the duties of citizenship and by ensuring they they understand the chronological story of the key events of our Mm -hmm. founding. Which is so important. Absolutely. If you don't know history, you don't know where you're going, right? Yeah. And also the actors and ideas that shape democracy and the larger world. Mm-hmm. Well, joining us by telephone again tonight to discuss the first draft of the new education standards in Minnesota is Catherine Kirsten. Catherine is a writer and an attorney, a senior policy fellow, and founding director at the Center of the American Experiment, having also served as its chair from 1996 to 98. Catherine has also served as a Metro columnist for the Star Tribune from 2005 to 2008, and before that was an opinion columnist for the paper for 17 years. She's a regular contributor on this show, and Catherine, it's an honor as always to have you join us again tonight on Education Nation. Thanks, Rebecca. Yes. Well, we're going to jump right in because, again, this is such an important topic. Many people, Catherine, believe that what's going on in the classrooms today and what is being proposed for the updating of social studies and English arts standards is all part of giving students an education. Can we take a few moments here and define the differences between what an education is and what it means to receive indoctrination from those we trust to educate our nation's students? I think there's a dichotomy here between the two. Right. And such a good question. Americans aren't accustomed to thinking in these terms. But mm-hmm. education, of course, uh, requires the free exchange of ideas and a, a an honest pursuit 
of the truth. Debate, yes, but you know, the, the idea that we're trying to reach the truth. But mm-hmm. indoctrination is very different. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it hides its true goals, and, and it uses manipulative tactics of what's called coercive thought reform mm-hmm. in order to change students' and teachers' attitudes and behaviors in ways that promote the manipulator's agenda. Mm-hmm. So very, very different. It's not about a search for the truth together, uh, but about trying to change people uh, to get them to line up behind your agenda without informing them that that's what you're trying to do. Right. And I think a lot of this, too, comes, or the door opens for indoctrination, because we've lost sight of what absolute truth is. We even negate mm-hmm. absolute truth by saying that truth is relative. Mm-hmm. But those Absolutely. who say that truth is relative are making what they would prefer to recognize as an absolute truth statement, right? right? So it is intertwined <laughs> <Yeah>. for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. You yeah, can't have it both ways. No, you can't. <laughs> and, and that means that you reject reason and logic, and right. in their place you put feelings and emotions. Yes. That's right. Which is something you identify with, with little kids, not with adults. Right. Right. Yes, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, in your research, Catherine, you do draw attention to a woman named Stella Morabito, and she's a former U.S. government intelligence analyst who has written extensively on the effects of propaganda and identity politics. What are her concerns in regards to the indoctrination that we are seeing today in America's schools? Well, she's very concerned, uh, and she says that what we're seeing today is, and I'm quoting from her, a psychological operation that plays on the fear of social isolation through identity politics, peer modeling, and social contagion. She says that human beings' greatest fear is not belonging, is social Mm -hmm. isolation. And this is what uh, woke activists are playing on with their cancel culture and their Mm -hmm. shaming and what we're seeing uh, going uh, forth in our schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it's just uh, interesting to me that not only are they playing off of this, but I, I obviously this is probably an obvious point, um, but they're separating us into smaller and smaller groups through that stratification. There's a there's a term I'm forgetting what the term for that is, where um, they've kind of got this whole um, line where you are you're. I'm having trouble explaining what I mean here, but oh, if you're yeah, a minority yeah, woman, there we go. Intersectionality. That's the word I'm looking for. Where the more uh, minority statuses that you have as a person, then the more oppressed you are. And um, that causes more and more division. You know, it's not just divisions on race, it's divisions on gender, on sexuality, on, exactly. um, you know, all different uh, backgrounds. And so it's been very interesting, because that really makes it easy then to remove people um, and make them feel socially isolated. Uh, because they're being put into smaller and smaller groups. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's discuss, Catherine, uh, just some of what's going on in some school districts here in Minnesota. We're going to uh, really hone in and make this uh, more local here uh, for our listeners. Uh, let's discuss specifically from whom this pressure to conform is coming from. You, you've pointed out that as the 2020 and 21 school year got underway, Abrasive, in-your-face demands and name-calling were becoming the norm at school board meetings and on parent websites. Explain for our listeners the demands that students and alumni 
in the Minnetonka district were making in efforts to peel the district away from what they believed to be a Eurocentric curriculum. Right. So in June uh, 2020, uh, in, in Minnetonka, which had been pretty immune from all of this, uh, a, a new group arose. And, of course, the, these groups always have self-righteous uh, titles. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a group of, it was called Students and Alumni. Uh, they called themselves the Minnetonka Coalition for Equitable Education. Mm-hmm. Uh, all parents I've talked to there say that they believe that uh, there are some pretty astute actors involved with this. This was fronted by students, but mm-hmm. not, you know, they're not the brains. Right. So this group um, issued uh, 11 what they called anti-racism imperatives. And one of the things uh, that was included here is a demand for a, quote, anti-oppressive curriculum that is a curriculum that is not Eurocentric, close quote. Hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, a, a fascinating topic uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of whether what, what it means to be Eurocentric and what it would look like if America were not Eurocentric. But yeah, yeah that's typical and- of what we saw. And like what you talked about last time, we we spoke with you last week, um, that in the absence of any historical data on uh, communism, Marxism, and the effect that that has had, the number of lives that have been lost, um, to talk about oppressors and um, get rid of Eurocentric, you know, rather than looking at the negatives that happened um, with uh, communism and Marxism, and then show the benefits of Western civilization and how that led to freedom. Um, they're they're leaving both out. They're leaving the bad of communism out, and they're leaving the good of of the development of Western civilization out. So uh, they're left. Then these these students are left with a basically blank slate. They can teach them whatever they want to teach them. That's right. Down the memory hole. Yeah. Well, in Hopkins, we had a similar situation um, where school officials now vowed that they were going to restructure student learning around the 13 characteristics of white supremacy. Share with our listeners, Catherine, what those characteristics actually look like in the Hopkins School District. Yes, well, there there is um, floating around out there something called the 13 characteristics of white supremacy, which uh, apparently a lot of school districts are taking seriously. How demeaning is this, though? Uh, among um, white supremacy's characteristics, supposedly, um, is, is a difficulty that black students have in turning assignments in on time, <laughs> punctuality. Oh um, anything that is, uh, quote, perfectionist, uh, is seen as white supremacist. Uh, anything that it, it would lead you to expect objectivity on the part of non-white students, and I'm quoting here, it's thinking in a logical or linear fashion. That is apparently something that non-white students uh, find very difficult. Mm. That's kind of something only white students can do. I mean, it's it's incredibly demeaning and patronizing. But what they're actually doing in the Hopkins Junior Highs is uh, dropping traditional letter grades for mm-hmm. a new assessment system because they say letter grades are linked to, quote, dominant white culture and so inequitable. Mm-hmm. You know, we've covered that fairly extensively, actually, in Wyzetta, yes, a couple of years ago. Yes, and right. it's actually pretty widespread throughout the Twin Cities. I think parents need to ask a lot of questions because sometimes they will still use letter grades, but they don't represent 
a percentage. Uh, they represent a five number numeric system that can be very right. subjective and um, and equalizing. And, you know, the thing, this is probably the topic that makes me the most upset when I hear... As a, as a head, head of a school, right. Yes, as a head of a school, I find this, like you say, very patronizing. And people talk about systemic racism. Well, what could be more racist than lowering the standards so low and expecting nothing? And then... And then, of course, they can't be successful. How would any person rise up if they're not going to learn how to turn things in on time or not learn how to do their very best work? That's not what's going to lead to success for any single person. And I would I would venture to guess that every single person that was in the Hopkins or in the Minnetonka schools saying that we need to make these changes would not expect their own children to behave that way. And so it's do for, you know, what's good for thee is not good for me or, you know, whatever that saying goes. And that is, that just, I just find my blood boils when I hear that kind of low expectation when that is not how we help everyone become united and become equal. We want education was the big equalizer. And now we're just going to let everything fall apart and just say, oh, well, no, we can't expect that of of certain certain racial groups. And that's not just an issue here in Minnesota. This is going on nationally. I don't know uh, if uh, it's just reserved to punctuality uh, in the Hopkins School District, but we know that in Oregon, for example, um, educators there are saying making math students show their work is white supremacy. Mm. So not only are we talking about whether to turn the assignment in on time and whether that's an issue of uh, racism, Mm -hmm. but if you ask a student in Oregon to work their math problem all the way out to show how they did the work and how they came to the answer they came to. One, there are no absolute answers in math, according yeah, to Oregon educators. That's changing, yeah. But mm-hmm. we're seeing this in other standards as well, mm-hmm. too. And once again, that does not set people up for, for success. success. Nope. Uh, any good math teacher knows that they need to require students to show their work because that's how they determine whether they really understand the concept, the concept and yeah. where did you go wrong? And they can help them figure out where they went wrong. And and once again, when we get into the real work world, which these students one day will be adults, it is completely out of touch with reality to think that there isn't a right or wrong answer when you're in the work world. Um, they yeah, are going to. At the same time, they are demanding that uh, there not be racial disparities uh, in, in sort of among um, racial groups of physicists or right. brain right. surgeons. Right. Now, if you don't teach a child to get a right answer that's important, uh, let's, we, we may be very, very concerned about uh, going into an operating room in the, in the future. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, across the country, Catherine, since 2018, English teachers, they have targeted English playwright William Shakespeare. And why are they doing this? Because according to an article earlier, two weeks ago, in the Washington Times, a group of teachers that founded the hashtag Disrupt Texts want staples of Western literature removed or subjected to withering criticism. Teachers, they fault Shakespeare's unwoke attitudes regarding race, sexuality, gender in class. And the teachers desire that Shakespeare's removal from class curriculum because this is about white supremacy and colonization. Um, The objection of Shakespeare in the classroom is happening here in Minnesota as well. In fact, Elizabeth Nelson, who teaches English at Twin Cities Academy in St. Paul, told the magazine School Library Journal that she gives her students Marxist theory when reading Shakespeare's tragedy Coriolanus about the Roman leader. 
Explain for us the kinds of pressure teachers. I want to focus on them here for a moment. What type of pressure are teachers going to increasingly face as they contemplate whether or not to embrace this type of groupthink that is now largely behind the drafting of standards for K-12 through education? Well, that's a very good question, of course, but let's point out first that uh, if she's concerned about white supremacy, giving her students Marxist theory Karl Marx was was white. Right. You know, most of the early uh, progenitors of Marxist theory were were white and European. So that seems a little uh, inconsistent to me. Mm-hmm. But in in terms of the the kinds of pressure teachers are facing, uh, it uh, it goes all the way from uh, being being uh, labeled a bigot, uh, shunned, called out. Uh, in the faculty lounge, or even by the administration, not not only um, because you're you're not uh, listening in these courageous conversations, but because you are not committing to action. Mm-hmm. You know, silence is violence for these people, and unless you you do much more than nod your head, but actually get involved. In, in pushing these things, uh, you may you may find your job on the line. And several uh, metro Twin Cities metro area superintendents said as much uh, at the beginning of this year to their faculty. And I'm thinking specifically here of um, of District 197, where the um, uh, the superintendent said that. Teachers who weren't on board uh, with this program uh, had had better consider uh, looking for employment elsewhere. Because mm. mm-hmm. we didn't think they would be uh, aligned with the, quote, difficult and uncomfortable work ahead. And, of course, they love this to be difficult and uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. this is very grim, angry stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's no joy. There's no humor. And this gives a sense for how careful we must be to, to do all we can to keep this out of our schools and our lives because it, it will bring depression, anxiety uh, to mm-hmm. both teachers and students and mm-hmm. parents as well, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. I don't think students know what to do with it. You know, I think they they get faced with some of these things, these conversations, and they know that they're supposed to be a right and wrong answer. And so they might go through the motions. But I think I, I'm sure they go home thinking, what are we? Is this school? <laughs> you know, yeah. is this really yeah. what this is about? Um, that's not what school and is the, about. And they know that at the core. The students know that. And the parents need to be there to affirm that, too, because yeah. education does start in the home. Yes, it does. Excellent it's point, Mark. Yes, right. Yeah, that's a really important point. Well, Catherine, the State Teachers Union Education Minnesota is also uh, very much on board with all of this, and they're pushing the racial equity ideology very aggressively. Can you tell about the equity organization the union endorses and how they present racial equity ideology? Well, I think um, you're you're talking about uh, teaching while white. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that is uh, an equity organization that uh, is very clear. It, it's supported by education, endorsed by Education Minnesota, our state teachers union, and um, in their materials, they they say um, as I. They meaning as I, as a, a white person, am elevated. Someone else is marginalized or oppressed. Again, it's it's this zero sum game. They're us versus them, and self abasement on the part of white teachers. White teachers acknowledging publicly that they don't 
forget reality, right? They commit microaggressions. They harm students, they're told, without even knowing that they're doing it. Mm. And, of course, what that does, if a teacher actually buys into that, means the teacher cedes his or her control and looks to these woke activists, these Mm -hmm. diversity consultants who are paid such big sums to tell them uh, about the world and how it works. It Mm -hmm. completely undermines their their sense of self and Mm -hmm. self-confidence, and it hands power to people who really, really like power. Mm -hmm. And who don't care at all about history. As you said earlier in the show, there is an ideology that they are trying to put forth and uh, they will use whatever tactics possible to make sure that that ideology gets yeah. promoted in the classroom. Yeah. It's just a tool. And another point I'd like to make here, Rebecca, talking about these groups, is the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. coalition. Black yes. Lives Matter uh, at school is one of their, I, I think just this last week, um, this is Black Lives Matter at school week, uh, but people need to know who these people are. Uh, one of the three founders, for example, is Patrice Cullors. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has she was trained at the, the radical Los Angeles-based Labor Community Strategy Center, which is run by Eric Mann, who's a former leader of the Weather Underground Terrorist Organization. Wow. This is all in her book, all in her book hmm. called uh, When They Call You a Terrorist. And she writes there that she studied, quote, studied Mao, Marx, and Lenin. And she specifically focused on tactics for influencing young people. I mean, these people know what they're doing, uh, but they, they fool the rest of us into putting the signs, yeah. Black Lives Matter signs on our front lawns, thinking we're doing something nice. Mm-hmm. What we're really doing is is reducing barriers in our own minds to the agenda mm-hmm. that these people plan to, to follow up with. Mm-hmm. And that's such an important, I'm so glad you brought that up, Catherine, because especially that particular group is the, obviously the most well-known known uh, group now in the U.S. regarding all of these critical race theory groups. And um, as you point out, people want to be caring. They want to they want to treat others as they would want themselves to be treated, you know, the the golden rule. And so they do think that by supporting Black Lives Matter, that they're doing that when in actuality, they're supporting agenda that that may be very different from what they believe themselves. And this really just highlights the importance of any organization that comes around must be thoroughly investigated to see where uh, the deepest thought is coming from in that organization. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, once again, you know, the Minnesota House, and we touched on this a little bit last week, um, Catherine, but we'll just readdress it again here tonight. Uh, The Minnesota House is trying to pass uh, comprehensive sexual education for our state's K-12 schools So why does sex ed legislation have to go through the legislative process, but the final social study standards can become law through administrative rulemaking without legislative involvement? Yes, that's a good question. And it's because of the original law passed uh, around 2000 that that created the social studies standards in the first place. So the legislature was very involved initially, and I've talked to people over there about this, and they said, yeah, we wanted this to be updated Every 10 years, you know, there might be new maps and new knowledge, that kind of thing. <laughs> they couldn't have expected this. <laughs> the and the right. whole thing was hammered out in a bipartisan 
way. And uh, what we find instead is that with a change of administration, that was all done under Governor Tim Pawlenty. Uh, when Mark Dayton came in, the, the standards were revised, but in a major way that hadn't been anticipated by the people who who uh, created them in the first place. And there was a row over that, but the uh, administrative law judge would go through. Uh, but But now, we are in this position with the current draft standards that it is entirely up to the the departments of education and the governor and the legislature unless they choose to to pass a new law they they have nothing to do with it Mm -hmm. and the likelihood of being able to pass a new law is slim given the fact that we've got democrats running the house and uh, Republicans running the Senate, so the likelihood of anything passing would be very slim. Right. And, a and a governor, and a governor, and a governor. right? In the place, right? It's, it's his baby. This yep. is his deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we continue to re- repeat that diverse committees' first draft standards are described as more inclusive and culturally affirming. However, Ilia Hodge, founder and president of People for Post-Secondary Educational Options raises concern that the first draft of the standards doesn't do enough to address the overwhelming dominance of, this is a quote now, uh, overwhelming dominance of Euro-American perspectives that is not only damaging to our children's identity, but also leads many students of color to disengage as they don't see themselves reflected, quote unquote. How can we encourage minority families, families of color who feel disenfranchised because they perceive other facets of American history are not being represented in the classroom without encouraging them to blindly embrace revisionist propaganda? Well, that's a good question. Let me just say first that in the former standards, there was so much more about the history of Africa, the history of China, etc. It's all been dropped. This is a a complete excuse uh, because uh, America's um, founding ideas of uh, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of majority rule, minority rights, uh, due process, etc., all, all of these things are, uh, they, they come from Western civilization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, are, we are a nation that's not based on skin color groups, but on shared ideals. Right. Not, not, not perfectly realized, but shared ideals. That's why we have all these people flooding in here wanting to mm-hmm. from, from Africa and other parts of the world. So how can we encourage them? I think by, by focusing on what we all share as human beings there's mm-hmm. a success formula mm-hmm. this is this country is the greatest job creation prosperity creating engine in in the history of the world and it's for everybody mm-hmm. everybody who works hard mm-hmm. everybody who who tries to live virtuously right mm-hmm. I, I think it'd be very interesting for um say african families and there are many african immigrants or mm-hmm. say caribbean immigrant black families here to talk about why they came here Mm. You know, what, what what drew them? What what is opportunity like here? There's so much corruption, say in Africa, you know, Nigeria, Kenya. Mm-hmm. A lot of African immigrants will talk to you about that, and and the kind of liberating effect uh, to to sort of make your way uh, by your own hard work and and merit that doesn't exist in most other parts of the world. So I think it's it's truly people's personal stories yes. mm-hmm. uh, that can be most effective. And um, we are a, quote, very diverse society. Let's get 
uh, some of the people who, who have firsthand knowledge about what this country has to offer to, to talk to other parents and students about mm-hmm. why it's such a great place. Catherine, yeah. we have about 30 seconds here, and I'm just going to wrap the last two questions up in these 30 seconds. A bill was put forth by the Senate to try to pause the passing of these standards for two years. What do you think is going to happen there? And then also, what can Minnesota families do to engage in the standard drafting process? Well, uh, number one, it's very hard to imagine that that, that bill will become law. But uh, what parents can do, I think, is to make their voices heard in objecting to the standards. It was because of that, because, uh, because of Center of the American Experiments Raise Our Standards project, that these standards were pushed back in terms of timing timing and the department knows it's got a hornet's nest mm-hmm. uh, in, in and parents need to keep that pressure up there we go well on that note thank you so much Catherine and thank, thank you, you Catherine. to our listening audience and we will see you next week thank you Mark at nationmn.org great to be with you all right good night